Hello, this is Josh. You're listening to the Invitation Podcast. This summer, during quarantine, we are continuing our discipline of working through Father Martin Laird's A Sunlit Absence. We are finishing up Chapter 4. This is Part 11 of our journey through A Sunlit Absence. Before we go to our practice of contemplative prayer, Let's just do a little review of where we have been. Chapter 4 is a movement through three metaphors from St. Hesychios. The illumination of a torchlight, the radiance of a moon, and the brightness of the sun. Here in this episode, we are going to continue finishing up the allure of the moon and cover the brightness of the sunlight. I'd like to revisit a bit from the torchlight. On page 76, Father Laird writes, The present moment has an utterly reliable way of being exactly the way it is at any given moment. This paradox of inner unity, of concentrated expansion, has opened up the present moment, revealing in this sunlit absence life as firm and unshakable as it is an ungraspable flow. Shakeable because it is our foundation. Ungraspable because it is constantly being poured out as sheer gift. This inner stability is the fruit of a maturing practice of contemplation. Quote, Continuity of attention produces inner stability Inner stability produces a natural intensification of watchfulness and in due measure gives contemplative insight into spiritual warfare. This in turn is succeeded by persistence in the Jesus prayer in which the mind, free of all images, enjoys complete silence. That is a quote from Hesychios. That's in the first volume of the Philokalia. And again, the Philokalia is a five-volume collection of the spiritual writings and teachings of the Eastern Orthodox Fathers. Spans from the 4th to the 14th centuries. What we have right now in English is just volumes 1 through 4, and the revered Callistos where is busy translating the fifth volume into English from Greek. If anything, understanding the context and the history of these writings, if anything, the continuity of teachings on inner silence for the better part of a thousand years puts this practice of the Jesus Prayer into the context. If you consider that America is just over 200 years old, right now we are in the midst of lots of pain, lots of confusion as we are starting to understand what we should do what could happen with kids as they return to school, as we try to get back to work, to be productive, and we continue with political strife, health issues, racism. This is powerful language. This is about being in the present moment. Life is firm. Life is unshakable. Life of Jesus is ungraspable flow. It's an inner stability that is the fruit of a maturing practice of prayer. 
And if we are watchful, if we pay attention to what is going on inside of ourselves, we're more aware of the spiritual warfare that is taking place inside of ourselves. There is an enemy who prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking those whom he may devour. And again, as we've been saying, the opposite of silence, the opposite of the contemplative life, is not the active life. The opposite of the contemplative life is the reactive life. So we are called to action, to live out our faith, to be doers and not just hearers of the word. But we must do this in a kind of unshakable, ungraspable flow where we have an inner stability of the life of Jesus flowing inside of ourselves. Some of us may be well-nourished and bearing fruit of this inner stability by way of corporate worship, by daily scripture reading from the gift of Bible study or sermons. As I have noted in the last two episodes, those are practices from the cataphatic, the revealed Christian spirituality where we come to Jesus in the light of day. We're turning this summer to the vocabulary of contemplation, of inner silence, for several possible reasons. Some of us are by nature, by God's design, more inclined to contemplation. And then others of us have practiced other spiritual disciplines thoroughly, and we are still left hungry and wanting more. I want to continue to encourage you to understand that the apophatic spirituality of silence, inner solitude, is not necessarily better than the cataphatic of Bible study and petitionary prayer. We're not saying that contemplation is better than other spiritualities. What we're saying is that it could be a way for you to become complete, to become more whole, because Jesus is the one who is both revealed to us. He is the imminence of God, and yet the Father, the Spirit, point to the transcendent, apophatic, the God whose ways are higher than our ways, whose thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And this is the nature of God, both imminent and transcendent, both cataphatic and apophatic, both here and yet far above. And as we are made in His image, there are certain parts of our own selves that are more revealed and obvious, and other parts of ourselves that are more hidden and difficult to reach toward. I continue to offer teaching moments to frame Father Laird's book so that we can have more access to this. My hope is to make contemplative practice more and more available to you, more approachable, more helpful. And yet with that said, we continue to confess that we can't learn how to pray by reading a book that the greatest master teachers in the world might be available to teach us more about prayer, but it only becomes more accessible in the grace of the Spirit's leading. So you may be led to understand more and more of the possibilities of contemplative prayer by following along with this podcast and reading the book. 
And yet it may not be the right season for you to dive deep into this. I have personally had some stops and starts with contemplative practice. And the worst thing we can do is try to force ourselves beyond the capacity of what the Spirit has given us grace for. And I'll add that some of my greatest help in diving into contemplative practice was learned by leading worship corporately for the better part of my life. I can honestly say that what I learned to do with a guitar over my shoulder in listening to the sound of the chords, the way I was playing each rhythm part, trying to join my heart into the meaning of the lyrics, and to share that moment with a congregation, that centering practice of leading music year after year after year, week after week, was the preparation, was the opening for me to understand how then to set the guitar down and to take that similar posture of openness to God, but to do that without the help of the music. So in a similar way, you can inspect the parts of your life, attend to the days, the weeks, the years of your life with a spiritual awareness. Where did you come to a place of emptiness and fullness of God? That's where I keep pointing to the kitchen. Most of us have to work in the kitchen when there is noise or when there is silence. Another great help for me was growing up working in the fields on a farm family. It could be for you a walk in nature, being alone on a camping trip. It could be the point of exhaustion at the end of a long work day where you push away from your desk and realize you have nothing left, but yet you still open yourself to God. Please help me. Come fill me in my exhaustion in my emptiness. This is the school of the Holy Spirit that uses the ordinary and the daily. He sneaks up upon us and invites us deeper. So with that, let's go to our practice. I invite you to allow the Holy Spirit to sneak up on you. Allow yourself to be surprised. And we're not looking for some supernatural fireworks of surprise. We're looking for a release of openness to freedom. To say no to the bombast, to the noise, to the chaos, and to say yes to the inner rest, to the inner Sabbath. Breathing in, and out carefully. That out breath might be the place where you learn to open yourself, to release breathing out. How does your body come to a place of stillness in that out breath? We're saying then, sacred name of Jesus, Breathing in, and saying Jesus as we breathe out to surrender. Noticing on the out-breath how your body 
comes to a place of stillness and rest. Surrender, trust. We're saying the name of Jesus because he is the most stable. He is the most freeing. He is the most alive. Carefully and slowly breathing in Jesus, releasing the tension in your body, slowing your anxious, busy thoughts. We're here to trust, to love, to bask in goodness. Amen. So just a little bit more review here. The concern as we move from the light of a torch to the warmth and the glow of the moon, the concern is that as we learn this movement from the watchful cooperation of the torchlight, where there is something active in our practice, as we move from that towards a more of a repose, more of a stillness, with the moonlight. The temptation is, as we go to that rest, is that we become lethargic. We become lazy. We become satisfied with something that is less than, something that is still on the surface. And indeed, this is the literature, this is the witness of the masters, that and going into the apophatic practice of contemplative prayer can actually be somewhat dangerous if not handled with care because we come to a place where we think that we have arrived at goodness. We start to heal and then we think that we've plateaued, that we're done. There is no sense of arrival or stasis in the spiritual life. We never stop growing and learning. This is the difficulty, the subtlety, the nuance of this new consciousness that we're trying to develop in cooperation with the Holy Spirit, of how to be at rest and yet still working. Again, I point you to Matthew 11. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Take my yoke upon you, and learn from me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This consciousness in the presence of God is different than our earthly self in the sense that we are at rest while still working. We're learning how God is restless in the sense that He never sleeps or slumbers. God is always active but God is also eternally at rest. This is St. Augustine. 
So the pursuit by torchlight is more of a seeing of things, the thoughts that we're wrestling with, and knowing how to deal with these particular thoughts and how to turn them into rest, surrendering them to God. Moving to the moonlight then is not so much seeing specific things, but allowing our lives to be illuminated by the face of Christ. We're not seeing Jesus as a particular object as much as everything around us becomes saturated by his presence. And again, it could seem as if we have arrived at some state of goodness and now we're done. But what we're learning from the tradition is that this is just another step along the way. And Father Laird describes this in the bottom paragraph on page 79. He writes, The contemplative's inner stance is not one of being swept down river along with everything else. The contemplative's repose is not a passive state, but an engaged, silent receptivity, quote, an ever-moving repose, end quote, as St. Maximus the Confessor calls it. Like a riverbed, which is constantly receiving and letting go in the very same moment, Vigilant receptivity and non-clinging release are one and the same for this riverbed awareness, as it constantly receives all coming from upstream, while at the very same moment releasing all downstream. The receptive letting go of this riverbed stillness characterizes what the pole of the moon, quote, rising in the firmament heart, end quote, is trying to teach us. St. Isaac the Syrian teaches us to, quote, love silence above all things because it brings you near to the fruit that the tongue cannot express. And then, from out of this silence, something is born that leads to silence itself, end quote. If we stay in the comfy hammock of lethargic inattentiveness, we slow our cooperation with what is trying to come to birth. Awareness is born from the silence that draws us and leads us to silence itself. Awareness is another name for silence itself. Those are capital S silence. I want to take a moment to notice the theological move that's happening here. There's a portion of the contemplative instinct that resists doing the theological analysis that I want to do here. And that's fine if you don't feel drawn to step back and to consider this this line. Awareness is another name for silence itself. You are, of course, free to take that line theologically where it makes sense for you and your theology. I'll offer my sense of what's happening here is that this is a powerful way to understand how it is that we cooperate with God, that contemplative prayer is not an act of our will, but instead is a gift and a movement of God himself, that for me to be able to see myself and to see God in myself, and to practice prayer at this depth, requires God. 
One teacher I listened to a long time ago said, in order to get more of God, we have to have God. God is required to find God. One way I know the contemplative tradition teaches this is that the God who is interceding in my deeper self, that it is deep calling into deep, it is God calling into God, that the God that is outside of me is in communion with the God who is inside of me. And so in practice, prayer is an uncovering of the divine presence that is intricately and essentially intertwined in my deeper self. This is Luke 17. The King James is translated, the kingdom of God is within you. Continuing here on page 80. As we work with our attention in our practice, it often seems as though we are excavating a mountain with a spoon, but we gradually sense that we are encountering something deeper. The prayer word flows directly into an ocean depth of awareness, deeper than the reach of the senses. St. Hesychios says of watchful awareness, quote, its branches reach to the seas and to the deep abysses of contemplation, its shoots to the rivers of the beauteous and divine mysteries, end quote. When we plumb the depths of our practice, we are embraced by a living presence that has known us from all eternity, Jeremiah 1.5. In this knowing presence in which knower and known are as one, the prayer word and the flowing vastness of simple awareness are one. Presuming the Jesus prayer as one's prayer word, St. Hesychios says we can look right into the mind. Quote, the more closely attentive you are to your mind, the greater the longing with which you pray to Jesus. Just as close attentiveness brilliantly illumines the mind, so the lapse from watchfulness and from the sweet invocation of Jesus will darken it completely. End quote. This brilliant illumination that St. Hezekiel refers to is always present within us, shining like the sun, cloud cover or not, though this fact of perpetual presence only gradually dawns on our everyday mind first, quote, in the intellect like a torch, end quote, then more deeply and expansively in the, quote, heart's firmament, end quote and now in the innermost depths of the heart like the sun. As I consider this movement from the light of a torch to the radiance, the luminous presence of the moon, I want to continue to encourage you to think about the journey here is a transition of our consciousness, the way we understand reality. I'm reminded of the disagreement between the two poets, Robert Frost and Wallace Stevens, Stephen's critique of Frost in a letter, he said, You write about things. And Frost replied back, You write about bric-a-brac. For a good while, I personally preferred Wallace Stevens over Robert Frost because 
Stevens seemed to allow me access to a conceptual reality that was beyond specific things. Wallace Stevens' poetry allowed me an access to a kind of reality that was beyond specific, tangible reality. There is a kind of resonance deeper beneath his words and his images and his sounds that spoke to me. I dismissed Robert Frost as one who was superficial and overly simplistic. His nature images, almost narrative-like, seemed too literal, too easy, and I preferred the more difficult, abstract, and terse imagery of Wallace Stevens. Over the years, I've come to respect and appreciate Robert Frost much more. The saying goes something like, the first time you read Robert Frost, you think you understand him. But by the third, fourth, fifth time, you realize you don't understand him. Whereas when you read Wallace Stevens, you know that you don't understand him on the first reading. I recall this commentary on these two poets as a way to help you bracket and to understand the shifting in consciousness that happens as we move closer and closer to God. Again, a bit of review. If you recall, much of our journey into the apophatic is a journey of unlearning. To borrow from Walter Brueggemann's vocabulary, our journey is one of orientation, disorientation, and reorientation. So we had already perhaps gone through a process of disorientation when we even moved to the light of the torch, when we realized that prayer allowed us to see deeper into ourselves those wrestling passions that are drawing us away from God's presence, where we have the illumination of God to see the darkness that's within us, and then to have that conversation and not judge ourselves, but to offer these things back to God in silence and in trust. Here at this level, contemplation is engaged with things and the torchlight as we move to the luminous presence of the moon is not so much about specific things, but enjoying the radiance of God's presence. And so that move itself from the torchlight into the moonlight, that is going to require another series of stages of orientation, disorientation, and reorientation. From the outside, the literature of this might seem tedious and laborious. You may be tempted to ask why in the world would God require us to go through all of these twists and turns. Then I want to continue to remind you that you do not have to go on this path towards God. This has to be a path that you're drawn to out of love. We are understanding that the gift here is to die to ourselves, to be reoriented around the life and the wisdom and the mind of Christ. You do not have to go this far. And in fact, to go any further for God requires you to have already acquired enough of God to help you along the way. And as you continue, it will be because of the joy that is set before you. Moving on to the third metaphor, Sunrise in the Heart, page 81. 
Father Laird writes, St. Teresa of Avila goes to great lengths to remind us that there is such a thing as inner light. Quote, we are conditioned, she says, to perceive only external light. We forget that there is such a thing as inner light illuminating our soul, and we make that radiance for darkness, end quote. St. Hesychios says our practice will dawn with yet a new brilliance, a, quote, continuous seeing into the heart's depths, stillness of mind, unbroken even by thoughts which appear to be good and the capacity to be empty of thoughts, end quote. With a training in silent prayer that we have learnt by torchlight and then by moonlight, our inner gaze is stilled and steadied in such a way that this inner light begins to dawn as brightly as the sun. Quote, Just as those who look at the sun cannot but fill their eyes with light, so they who always have a steady gaze into their heart cannot fail to be illumined. End quote. This discovery was one of St. Augustine's great realizations. He sees that this inner light is itself illumined by light shining in light. Quote, the very light that shone in my eyes was mine no longer, for the light was within. End quote. For Augustine and for many of the saints and sages, this is a glimpse of what the psalmist glimpsed. Quote, in your light, Lord, we see light. End quote. Psalm 36.10 This is the liberating, rich poverty of contemplation. Our practice is reduced to the sheer simplicity of light shining in light. This is what David bodes forth in his Florentine gallery of light. The luminous simplicity of this grounding awareness is beyond the reach of doubt. St. Diatikos understates his solid surety of this when he says, quote, You should not doubt that the intellect, when it begins to be strongly energized by the divine light, becomes so completely translucent that it sees its own light vividly, end quote. When certain inner conditions are ready and ripe, the ground of awareness opens up from within, the sun dawns, and we are utterly free of shackles. Our life circumstances, however, whether grim or glad, remain with us. Our character's quirks remain firmly in place, but we are free in the midst of both sorrow and joy, free and gracious enough to welcome and respond to the present moment however it happens to be. We cannot pull this off ourselves, because what we usually take to be this self that likes to accomplish such spiritual feats as awakening or enlightenment has fallen away, lost, Matthew 6.25, if only momentarily, like a crystal in sunlight. Something, quote, ever ancient, ever new, end quote, dawns in awareness, not as an object of awareness, for it is too close to us for that, but as a sunlit absence, interior to awareness itself, quote, more intimate to me than my inmost self, end quote, as St. Augustine famously phrased it. To the conceptual mind, this awakening differs from previous ones. This luminous, flowing vastness 
is constantly present whether we turn our gaze within or without. For in this vastness there is no within versus without. This ground awareness does not joust with divine present versus absence, for it embraces both. It is beyond any possibility of doubt, for awareness saturates both doubt and consent, and its silence embraces both fear and trust. It is as Teflon to both past and future, untouched by time, but without being excluded by time. It is yet within time, but without being contained by time. Too simple to come and go, it is the fullness of time. Galatians 4.4 When we look within, the eye that looks is saturated by this vastness. Not the I-E-Y-E, but the I, like the personal I. The I that looks is saturated by this vastness. It's a capital V, saturated by God. When we look without, this I is liberated of itself by its immersion in the very vastness that indwells it. John 14.10 and John 17.22 and 23. Much like the sponge that is immersed in the ocean depth that fills its every membrane. When the sponge looks out, it sees only ocean. When it looks within, it sees only ocean. We are graciously immersed in Jesus' own awareness of the simplest of facts. Quote, He who sees me sees the Father. John 14, 7. The Father and I are one. John 12, 45. To lose our life, Matthew 10, 39, is to find it, quote, hidden with Christ in God, end quote. Colossians 3, 3, in the overflowing, simple suchness of what is. Not only is this blossoming of awareness from within a depthless depth of our reach of doubts, arthritic grip, but also it presents itself as always having been present throughout our entire personal history. It quite rightly seems to us that there has been a slow, gradual blossoming, but once this blossom has opened, it is obvious that the debtless depth of awareness has always been this open, sunlit absence. This realization is just another roadside paradox of the spiritual path. This absence is not the lack of something that ought to be there, but the overflowing of vastness as right now. The inner vastness that overflows as now, in which all of us live and move and have our being, Acts 17.28, cannot be absent, not due to any constraint, but due to the naked simplicity of its freedom. Certainly, this spacious, silent land can seem to be absent or distant to the distracted, discursive, calculating, or frenzied mind, but to the still mind of the inner eye, the eye of the heart, or the gaze of the mind, as Augustine calls it. It is and always has been closer to us than we are to ourselves. The sun of awareness in the gaze of the heart is not a heightened state of awareness that soon descends into a trough of awareness 
only again to ascend the heights. The vastness of awareness itself grounds all these changing states of mind. The condensation of our innumerable states of mind, thoughts, mood, and character is an ever-changing pattern of weather. But this certain terrain of mountains and valleys of simple awareness witnesses all these changing patterns of weather as they move through our psychological terrain, changing as weather changes. The heart's vastness receives pain, strife, confusion, fear, anger, frenzy, yet is untouched by pain, strife, confusion, fear, anger, frenzy. It is as immediately present to pain or illness that it is being healed as it is to pain or illness that is not being healed. It receives and lets go as a riverbed receives and lets go, both at the same instant of all the water of daily life the river carries along. Awareness itself, the very awareing, is never awareness of something. Yet by virtue of its simplicity, it grounds all things and therefore is never separate from anything. The gaze of the heart is always gazing into God, for this is quite simply what the heart's depth does. R.S. Thomas states more clearly the inherent paradox of gazing into God. Because it is not I who look, but I who am looked through, Gloria. This undeniable luminous vastness that slips out of any clothing that mere words can weave, but of which every tongue must tell, is not a physical light that occurs in space and time. Saints and sages throughout the tradition frequently warn us about thinking of it in a physical form. St. Augustine reminds us that while he was busy concerning himself, quote, only with things that are contained in space, this light was not in space. End quote. Evagrius says the demon quote, cunningly manipulates the brain and converts the light surrounding the intellect into a form. St. Diatikos warns that if this light quote, has a shape, it is the product of the evil artifice of the enemy. End quote. He insists that we should not take up a spiritual path, quote, in hope of seeing visions clothed with form or shape, for if we do, Satan will find it easy to lead our soul astray. Our one point is to perceive the love of God fully and consciously in the heart, end quote. Why the insistence that the inner light has no shape? Academic theology reminds us that this mystery we call God is beyond what can be grasped as shape and form in the way we grasp tangible things. St. Teresa gets straight to the point when she says it is because, quote, it is all about love melting into love, end quote. St. John of the Cross would suggest that this is not a blurring of identities, but just the way things are. Quote, it seems to such a person, that the entire universe 
is a sea of love in which it is engulfed, more conscious of the living point or center of love within itself. It is unable to catch a sight of the boundaries of love. End quote. This realization is not a confusion of the discursive mind's conceptual distinction of creator from creature, but creation's ultimate clarity and consummation. On the spiritual path, quote, we walk by faith and not by sight, end quote, 2 Corinthians 5.7. The full splendor of the sun of awareness reveals the most ordinary daily events to be transparent to David's splendid gallery of light. This is the fact. Our liberating reduction to porous simplicity, the infinitely luminous expanse of right now. Quote, this light itself is one, and all those who are one, who see it and love it. We're getting to that point of the book where I feel somewhat stupid trying to make any further commentary. If you find yourself at a point where this vocabulary that Father Laird is using seems so obtuse that your brain is getting hot and heavy and lethargic, one response is to say, this is too much. This is too high, too lofty, too difficult. I need to go to bed. I'm out. I am done. The other response is to give thanks. I'd like to invite you to listen beyond your listening, to be aware of your awareness. Is there something stirring in you that's drawing you closer? Even if you can't understand this text in your prefrontal cortex, if it doesn't make sense in the world of the daylight of mathematics and textbooks and instruction manuals. Instead of being discouraged by what you do not understand, pay attention to what is drawing and stirring inside of yourself. When we read the Desert Fathers, or St. John of the Cross, Thomas Merton, or the way that Father Laird is using the tradition of Hesychios, the discipline is to read and listen with our deeper selves, to allow the Holy Spirit to help us discover new possibilities in our prayer. Then we set the text aside and go pray. We practice the presence. We learn from the Holy Spirit. And then we come back and reread these sections again. We listen with our deeper selves. We allow the Holy Spirit to stir in us possibilities of faith. And again, we set the text aside, going back to practice, going back to prayer, to the school of the Holy Spirit, and back and forth into a kind of conversational approach. So instead of trying to commit the sin of over-explaining, especially this third metaphor of the sunlight. I'll simply say that these three metaphors, the light of the torch, the luminous moon, the brightness of the sun, 
are giving us a sense of resonance of what is possible in our awareness of God so that we become full of God in a practiced, daily, lived, abundant life. And I give thanks for this vocabulary. As I grew up in an evangelical-leaning Protestant tradition, I read passages like John 10.10 that he came to give us life and to give it to us abundantly. And John 14, my peace I give to you, my peace I leave with you, not as the world gives to you. And then especially Philippians 4.7, in light of the vocabulary of the apophatic, this is a peace that passes all understanding. A peace that is not of this world, a peace that is beyond my ability to grasp or control. I give thanks for this vocabulary because growing up, I haven't known very many people that practice this peace, that are full of this abundant life. I personally have struggled to acquire it. And here with Father Martin Laird's writings as he brings in the teachings of Augustine, St. Teresa, John of the Cross, Hesychios, and the desert tradition, we are being invited into a long conversation of the specific practice of the presence of God. And from the outside, this vocabulary seems obtuse and difficult, but as we actually live into it, we'll start to see that this is incredibly helpful, incredibly practical, incredibly specific, so that God's peace and love, this inner stability, does not remain just an abstract idea, a possibility that is somewhere out in the future. Instead, this is a vital living reality of my daily bread. So as we bring this episode to a close, I invite you to still your heart and your mind to take this posture of trust and openness to God. We return to the sacred name of Jesus to repeat this, to recite it in our hearts. If it helps you to say it out loud, we're attentive to our breath, relaxing our body, surrendering ourselves to the kingdom of God, letting the kingdom, the presence, the love of God that is deep within us to emerge, shine. We recite the name of Christ lovingly, carefully, As you center and find a posture of openness, trust, I invite you to have a conversation with the Spirit. What are you calling me to next in my practice, in my awareness? Can you open the eyes of my heart? Can you help me see how I am seeing? Spirit, how would you have me continue in my prayer? and in my discipline.
look and listen for some insight about your daily practices. How are you praying? How are you not praying? How would you like to continue to surrender and sacrifice more of your time, your energy, your attention? Talk to Jesus about these things. At this point, you may have certain things to confess. Things, thoughts, habits, practices that have been obstructions. I invite you to confess these things quickly and understand that there is therefore now no condemnation for anyone who is in Christ Jesus. And in fact, it is your greatest weaknesses It is these obstructions that will teach you a dependence upon God's active presence in your life. Amen. So however you are accessing this summer study of a sunlit absence, if you are continuing to listen and to find something stirring inside of you, something that is drawing you deeper and further, or in the vocabulary of C.S. Lewis, further up and further in, then I invite you to discern if the Invitation School of Prayer could be a resource of help for you to continue in this journey. The School of Prayer is an eight-month journey in a study and a practice of our rule of life with special focus and attention on contemplation. It is intentionally designed to be somewhat rigorous. It's designed to help you Think about some sort of countercultural way of doing a day that is more and more aware of God's presence in your life. We spend the first four months practicing the same rule as we are respectively reading, discussing, and writing our own unique rules of life. And then in January, we flip it so that the second set of four months. We are each freed to practice what we know we are called to as we continue to read other books, continue in discussion, and communal practice. I'll be frank and honest that I am not really great at fasting. I am still growing into my own rule of life as I have made gains and also had lots of failure over the years. It continues to be not just a journey towards humility, but a flat-out journey towards humiliation. So committing to a communal practice like the School of Prayer requires a kind of humiliation, a kind of desperation, where we realize there's only so much growth that can happen by myself 
that ultimately, in order to make these deeper commitments, I need a place, a time, a group of people to work out these questions with. So because of COVID-19, I am aware that the School of Prayer will need to be flexible and approachable for people at distances. So if you are interested and you are far away from Michigan, you are welcome to reach out to me, josh at invitationpodcast.org to express your interest. My question will be for you if you can have a partner, someone somewhere in the world that you can do this and practice with. I'll be offering some some irregular videos of instruction as well as holding some online discussions about our reading and some group listening practices as well throughout the whole journey. So, love to hear from you. If the invitation has been fruitful for you, if it has been something that has been consistently part of your growth, please consider a financial donation to help support what I am up to. With this, you can find a donation button at invitationpodcast.org. If you're listening and you have not yet subscribed to the invitation, please do so also at that website. Of course, the greatest gift that you can offer the invitation is your friendship. I may not be able to write everybody back that writes me, but I do read all the emails that I get and it is very encouraging just to hear something about how you are growing, how you are living into God, wherever you are in the world. The email feedback helps me remember that I'm not just serving a vague nebulous internet, but actually serving specific people in a specific place. And recently I've received a few emails asking if it's okay to post invitation podcast content on your respective website for your respective community. And the answer is always yes, yes, yes. The invitation is for the church and for anyone. So please share and share abroad. Invite someone to listen to the podcast and join in this journey with us. So until next time, be blessed. Amen. Amen.